In March of 2022, our family was forced to evacuate from Ukraine. We have served as missionaries in Lviv for over 20 years, and now, like so many others, we find ourselves suddenly displaced from our home, our church, and our precious Ukrainian friends. But despite the shock of evacuation, God is opening doors and leading us step-by-step step down this new path. Our purpose is to bless and minister to Ukrainians affected by the war. Come with us as we share our stories, striving to serve God, bless people, and praying that someday soon, this journey will lead us back to our beloved Ukraine. Hello, everybody. Joshua here. Welcome back to the Journey to Ukraine podcast. This will be another one of our solo episodes, hopefully a bit of a, a quick update. So as many of you may recall, I recently took a trip into Ukraine and stayed for about five days. And this was a significant and I would say even an emotional trip for me uh, because I've not been to Ukraine for about the past six months. And that delay was certainly not due to any lack of desire on our part or even due really to any of the safety conditions. It was primarily due to the delay in our residency application here in Slovakia because of all of the processes that were involved there. Uh, we were not able to leave the country to, to cross out of Slovakia during that time. But praise the Lord, uh, I have now received my residency card and I'm able to travel. And so um, recently I did, I did take that opportunity and went to Ukraine. So just being in Ukraine helped for me kind of bring a new clarity. And I think it answered some questions for our family. Being here in Slovakia um, has certainly been difficult in the sense that we continue to feel ourselves in limbo. You, you probably know the feeling of wanting to plan your life, <laughs> wanting to look ahead and say, where are we going to be next month? Where will we be next year? Um, and that's impossible for us to do right now because despite where we want to be and where we want to go, um, war is unpredictable and we have no way of knowing. But on the other hand, it's a great reminder that we walk not by sight, but by faith. So having said all that, in this episode, I'd like to just share with you a few thoughts about my trip, about my time in Ukraine, some of the impressions that I had from that trip, and draw some conclusions about what that might mean uh, for our future as a family in Europe and hopefully once again uh, serving in Ukraine. So let's start our story with early on the Saturday morning when I left to go uh, to Ukraine and drove uh, through Slovakia towards this very same border crossing that we used when our family evacuated back in March. Now, actually, if we were going to drive from Zelina, which is the city we live in in Slovakia, to Lviv, our hometown in Ukraine, the shortest route actually is to go north into Poland, kind of towards Krakow, and then west and into Ukraine. Um, but for a few reasons I won't get into, we felt like it would be better this time to stick with just the Slovakia-Ukraine border and not, not put Poland into the mix. Um, so I took off driving uh, west, kind of south, or excuse me, east, kind of southeast uh, through Slovakia towards the um, towards the Ukraine border, drove again past the Tatra Mountains, which are quite beautiful. I remember the first time I drove 
uh, to Jelena to check out our apartment that we were going to rent. I was struck by the, the beauty of the Tatras as I drove by. But this crossing was a bit of an ap- apprehensive one for me because it was the first time that I'd be crossing the border with my new Slovak residency card. Uh, for most, um, say, Americans or Western tourists who come to the EU, they're allowed to stay 90 days um, as, you know, as tourists, and then they have to leave. And so we had been here far longer than that, even before we got our residency cards. And so there was a little bit of apprehension about whether or not they would say anything about that or whether it would be a problem. We had been assured many times that it wouldn't be. And happily, that proved to be the case. This border crossing was, in fact, one of the quickest I remember. The, the Slovak side was was barely 10 minutes. I mean, I showed them my passport. I gave them my, uh, you know, the vehicle documents. I gave them my car, my uh, residency card. They checked it, handed it back to me, waved me on through. The other reason that this um, particular border crossing was a bit of a question mark was because I was also bringing in a generator, which was donated by the Shepperson family to be used for for folks in Ukraine who have that need. And anytime you bring a valuable uh, item like that across the border, there can be questions and customs and so forth. But the Slovak side waved me through no problem at all. So then you kind of, once you pass through, say, one side, you sort of drive across this little no man's land and you approach the Ukrainian side. And then I, of course, showed them my documents. And um, we also have temporary residency in Ukraine, as we have had for many years. So I wasn't expecting a problem there, but I was a little bit apprehensive about the generator. And sure enough, they asked me, okay, well, you know, what's this? you're bringing in and yes, this is a generator. Okay. Well, where's your receipt? And I, I didn't have a receipt or I actually turns out I had one in the box, but I didn't know that I had, that it was in there. Um, and I said, well, I, I don't have it. It was, this is given to me by a friend. Uh, we just wanted to, or he just wanted to donate it to some people to help in Ukraine. And, uh, she said, well, you have to, and I, I even told her that we had checked in advance, which was true to see if there was going to be some kind of a customs or tax on the on the generator. And they said, no, generators aren't being taxed right now, which that makes sense. They want to bring in as many as possible uh, into Ukraine. So she said, you're right, there's no, um, there's no customs or fee, but you have to declare the value. And in order to do that, we need to see the receipt. So we went out to the... Uh, the van and, and I opened it up and showed it to her and said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm an American. I don't really understand the system, but we're, we're just trying to help. And, and she looked at it and she said, all right, if you, if you, uh, if it's under 500 euros, you don't have to worry about it. So we're just going to write down 500 euros and you can go. <laughs> so anyway, she waved me on through start to finish. I think the whole crossing was about 30 minutes. Um, despite the, the little hiccup with the generator, it wasn't bad and I made it through. So that, that was a huge praise. So the next part of our story is my impression driving through the dark. Now, if you've at all been following the news about Ukraine, you know that the one of the biggest challenges facing them right now is the the relentless destruction of their critical infrastructure by Russia. Russia continues to fire drones and missiles and all these things that are targeting power stations, power lines, substations, uh, anything to do with keeping the lights on in Ukraine. They're trying, as I I saw a video today, someone put it this way, that they're trying to plunge them into a dark freezer. And as you might expect, it's one thing to read about all that on the news. It's another thing to literally experience it. And as I crossed into Ukraine uh, in the southwestern part of the country and then drove north uh, through the Carpathian Mountains, it was striking because as 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 I started to go through the mountains, it was getting late in the afternoon and then 
you know, another hour or so passed. And as I was going through a lot of the upper mountain villages, it was, it was starting to get dark. And I kept scanning the, the villages I would pass through for lights. And, and yes, these are rural areas. It's not, you know, there are not a lot of cities out there or anything. But I've been through the Carpathians many, many times. I mean, that's, that's where a lot of the focus of our ministry has been over the past years. And these, were, these are familiar areas for me. And village after village was completely dark. And you could tell that they weren't abandoned. You could tell there were people there because there was smoke coming out of the chimneys. People were burning wood or whatever they were burning, trying to keep warm, but no lights. And as I would approach larger towns, there were some lights that were on. But even then, it was, it was strange. It was weird to see how much darkness there was. You'd be driving down a a city freeway, not not a big interstate like ours, but like a, one of the main roads in a city that that definitely would normally have street lights on it, and there are no street lights. You would approach a large intersection, and all the uh, all the traffic lights would be off. Um, so this was very interesting, um, very sad uh, as I drove uh, past all of these villages and just saw darkness. And I think the thing that struck me is. I was just glad to have the opportunity to be back and experience that firsthand. That might sound odd to say, but I think one of the things that a person wants the most when someone they care for is suffering is to be with them, even perhaps to share that suffering if possible. Me being there and sitting with Ukrainians in the dark uh, or being cold when they're cold, that doesn't help them any. Um, but nonetheless, it was, it was a comfort to me to be there, um, to be in the country during these times, during the things that were happening. So drove north through the mountains. It took me four, five hours by the time I got up to Lviv to get there. Um, and when I got to Lviv, it was the same story. And again, Lviv is like essentially my home city. I've lived there longer than any other city in the world, even in the United States. And these, you know, the roads uh, of Lviv, the different approaches and the, the streets and the buildings are very familiar to me. And it was, again, it was striking to drive into the city, which should be just brilliantly lit with businesses and people and the hum of activity. And it was all dark. And uh, I would I would go to major intersections, very very kind of like gnarled, uh, busy, complex intersections that we always complain about that are really hard to get through in the best of times, even when the traffic lights are working. And you would go there, and there were there were no lights. Um, so that was kind of my first major impression: is that Ukraine was in darkness, and and that was sad. That was hard. So as I entered Lviv, my first stop was actually uh, to visit some friends, Tomas and Miriam, who are uh, missionaries from Czech, but they've served in Lviv for many years, and, and we've known their family very closely. And um, it turns out they actually work with the same missions organization as the Shepherdsons, who are our friends in uh, in Jelina. So anyway, it was the arrangement was made for me to pass off this generator from from Zach Shepherdson to Tomas, and then Tomas had had a contact. Uh, with the Ukrainian family, and he was going to pass it on from there. So I drove first to their house and, and had a had a chat with Tomash. And it's funny the things you find yourself talking about, you know, like, okay, what about the air raid sirens? Where do you guys normally go to the shelter? Do you go to the shelter? Um, what about power? What are the power outages like? 
Uh, how do you do this? How do you do that? What about internet? You know, they, they have Starlink. So they said, if you, if you get stuck and the internet is off, you can come to our house and, you know, use our Starlink, <laughs> Starlink connection. If you're not familiar with Starlink, it's a, it's a satellite based internet service that uh, is run by Elon Musk. Um, but anyway, after dropping off the generator at Tomash and Miriam's house, I then went to my house on Pancha. And, uh, you know, imagine being away from your home for six months, which is about as long as it'd been and getting back to your house. And there's, there's, you know, another family living in your house and there's no power. I, I knocked on the door, but I guess they didn't hear me for some reason. So I let myself in completely dark and we all, it was, it was at first, I think they didn't know who I was or what was going on, but, um, anyway, they realized, and we were all like standing in the, in the entryway, kind of greeting each other and, and, uh, you know, swapping pleasantries with our cell phones. Everybody just walks around with their cell phone flashlight and the heat is off, the electricity's off, there's no internet, there's no nothing. So I said, hello, I brought in my things, carried my bags up to the upstairs room where, where I would be staying. And I just kind of sat there and it was, it was again odd because so much of what we do, um, is dependent on electricity. I, you know, normally I would have gotten in there. I would have checked my phone. I would have texted Kelsey, you know, to let her know that I had made it, maybe gotten on my computer, uh, done some work, whatever, gone in the bathroom, turned on the lights, gone over here and turned on the lights. Everywhere you go, you would, you would need electricity, but there was none of that. And so I just kind of sat there for a few minutes collecting my thoughts, like, okay, what, what, what should I do? And having not been at my house for a long time, I, I wasn't even sure where to find things that might normally be close at hand, like candles. So after a few minutes, I took my phone, I went back downstairs, and I went to a drawer where I remembered we used to keep some candles and rummaged around. And sure enough, I found a few kind of half burnt out or half used up candles, got those lit. Um, and, uh, anyway, it was, a, it was an interesting first night and the power did end up coming on, but it was late. Uh, it didn't come on until, uh, 10 or 11, something like that. Um, and the mobile connection, like the mobile phone connection was there. And I think if you wanted to just make a phone call to somebody that would typically work pretty well, even during the power outages. But I found the mobile internet to be very spotty when the, when the lights would go off or when the electricity would go off. You could sometimes uh, get some mobile internet. It might be enough to send a text message or something, um, but nothing, nothing very sustained. So anyway, those were some first impressions as I arrived home at my house on Pancha. Now, one of the one of the very bright points of my trip was my Sunday reunion. That was the uh, so that I, I think I got in on a uh, Saturday evening, and so Sunday morning I went to church, got there a bit early, and that was fantastic. Just seeing these folks who are so special to me. They, these are the people that I've sort of grown up with in Ukraine. Many of them are folks that I've known for 20 years or more uh, from the very first days that I arrived in Ukraine. Many of these are people that I learned Ukrainian with. When I met these people, I couldn't speak to them directly in Ukrainian. But as I learned the language, um, in, in some ways, I learned it from them. I learned it because I, I spent time with them. And so it was these folks that, you know, I hadn't seen them in many months. Many of them had evacuated and been at various places in Europe. Um, but we had a great, a great time there. Um, it was just good to be back for a Sunday morning service. As it happened, the day that I was there, there were two other guys, uh, who had been away for a while who were able to be back. One of them was, um, Pastor Vladislav, who we have talked about him before and mentioned in a previous episode that he had suffered a heart attack, um, 
fairly serious one and had to spend several weeks in a uh, in a rehab center down in the Carpathians. But the Sunday that I got there uh, happened to be his first Sunday back. So it was great to see him and, and, and get reacquainted there. And then also uh, one of the men in our church who is serving in the military is a guy named Yura Chuhai. Um, his wife plays in the in the music ministry in our church, and uh, he is serving in the East in one of what is right now considered to be the hottest zone on the front line. It's a city called Bakhmut, and uh, he serves there. Very very dangerous uh, situation, but he was he was given some leave, I think about five days, and was able to come to Lviv and spend time with his wife and reconnect with folks at the church. So. This was just a, a wonderful, wonderful, refreshing, joyful time, a reunion with the dear saints there at, uh, at our church in Lviv. So one of my major goals during my few days that I had in Lviv was to go out to this town called Radakhiv. And Radakhiv is the location of the humanitarian organization that we've partnered with a lot called Radakhivsky Hospodeni. And uh, they sort of act as a collection point for all kinds of aid, everything from bulletproof vests to uh, to ramen noodles and, and all in between coffee and medical supplies and the whole bit. And they receive donations from various individuals and other organizations and and then they arrange to get it on vans or other transport and get it sent out to the front. In fact, a lot of the <clears throat> a lot of the ladies that are the main volunteers and working there have personal connections with soldiers in various points. Uh, they even some of them have sons uh, or nephews that are serving. Some of them have people that they just they just know or or connections that they've had. Um, so I wanted to go out and visit them again. We've we've donated them many times over the past couple of months, past few months. Um, help to get supplies out there. So Yura Petriv, who you, you may remember from our previous episodes, he and I got in the yellow van. Uh, we first went to uh, a local grocery store and and gathered a bunch of supplies, you know, bought a bunch of toilet paper. I had brought in some things from Slovakia, some coffee and some snacks and other stuff. Anyway, we got a, we got a decent amount of things to bring. And then we took off and drove, it's about an hour or so, out to Radakhiv and just got to see the folks there and again, it's kind of, it's interesting because these are not people that I necessarily know very well, but they greeted me with big bear hugs and bright smiles. And I think when you're, when you find yourself in such a perilous situation as Ukraine does, um, facing these unthinkable evils, and you find yourself on the same side of that conflict with others, it brings about kind of a unity and a camaraderie that you might not necessarily have experienced otherwise. Um, so it, it was great to be able to see these folks. We've been trying to get some, uh, some good and evil boxes onto the vans going out, um, to the, to the different places. Um, and certainly a lot of, a lot of food and medical supplies and things, but it was great to see them. Um, their director is a lady named Milena and she actually has previous military experience herself. Um, and she is an extremely motivated person, very bright, very upbeat, um, and she has some harrowing stories to tell. She's actually visited the front lines on a number of occasions. She knows people out there, and I would really like to get her on one of our episodes uh, to tell some of her stories, so um, hopefully we can get that 
together soon, but uh, it'll blow your mind to sit there and listen to the things that she can tell. So it was a wonderful time uh, visiting Radekhiv. Uh, as an aside, Yura got his first chance driving the van. Um, this was one of the main purposes for coming to Ukraine was to bring the yellow van back into the country and leave it there. We left it with Yura Petriv so that he could drive it for various ministry reasons, whether that's picking up boxes of good and evil from our, um, from our storage facility just outside Lviv or taking supplies out to Radekhiv or other things. Um, so he kind of got acquainted with driving the van. That was good. And just had a fantastic day on that Monday, uh, spending time with our friends out in Radekhiv. So another story or a couple stories that really stuck in my mind, again, related to all the electricity outages, was a uh, one we'll call Coffee in the Dark. Um, I had arranged uh, to meet an old friend uh, for coffee one evening while I was there, and I you know, called him, and the way we set it up is he was going to come to my home and meet me just outside our building, and then we were going to walk across uh, to a coffee shop. So it was about 6, 8, 6 p.m., something like that, and as I left our building and went downstairs to the main entrance there, um, all the power was on. Um, but a couple of minutes after I exited the building and as I waited outside on the sidewalk for him to come, apparently our window of light or our window of electricity allowance ended and we hit another blackout window. And that was interesting too, just to see enti an entire region blink out. It, it was almost like on a, on, a, on a movie, one of these spy movies or action movies, you know, when an EMP hits and you see, you hear kind of the sound effect. I'm not sure it really makes that sound. It seems to in your head where just kind of the buildings go off one at a time, like do, 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 do. And, and that's what it felt like. I mean, all the entire buildings were just blinking out right in front of me, not just the buildings, but the streetlights, everything just black. And so by the time he arrived, we were both kind of just standing there uh, like, well, hey, are we, gonna, are we, are we still going to be able to make uh, get coffee in it? It had started raining. So here we are walking through a city, again, that, that should have been brilliantly lit. Uh, and it was dark and it was raining, but a lot of a lot of small businesses now have acquired generators. And so even if the even if you have a blackout in your region of the city, you can sometimes still get service depending on the business that you're going to. So he had suggested this one uh, this one coffee shop. We walked over there, it took us 10, 15 minutes to get there. And sure enough, we arrived and they had a generator on. So I asked for this one coffee and uh, I, I I'd wanted to get a v60 they I, I noticed on the menu that they had a that they offered a v60 which if you don't know that's a that's a kind of a pour over um, but the lady said sorry we can't do the v60 because that particular grinder won't run on our generator so you can have this other you can have this other kind of coffee we can we can run the grinder for that one so okay so I got that coffee and uh, my friend said he got a coffee D different said he not chipotta by the way and uh, we sat down and as we sat there, you know, you could hear the generator running and it, apparently they hadn't had it long because they were still fiddling with it and trying to get things worked out. A couple of times as we sat there talking, the power went out um, and, you know, people learn to just live with it. You know, you flip your phone uh, flashlight on, you know, try to prop it up where it shines at a wall so you get some ambient light, something like that. And uh, then, the, then the power would come back on. Um, and uh, that was interesting just to kind of see... First of all, to, to go and have have a coffee meeting in the dark, but also to kind of see an entire region of the city blink off. Another very interesting effect uh, one time was a, a point when I was returning uh, from a bank and I, 
and I traveled from a, a region that had light to a region that didn't. Now, before I finish that story, let me pause and and mention the the blackout schedule as it was when I was in Lviv. So, um, in a previous episode, I had said that um, the schedule was something like four hours of of electricity and then eight hours off, and then again four hours. And that that's what I had understood at the time, and and perhaps that's the way it was. I don't know. These things do change from time to time. However, when I arrived in Lviv this time, the reality that I found on the ground was that you would get a you would have a four hour blackout, and then you would typically have anywhere from four to eight hours of electricity on, followed by another four hour blackout. And they had the whole city divided into groups, and depending on your street name, you could look up your street name to determine what group you were in. And so, for example, you might have let's say your power would come on at seven a.m. in the morning, and then you'd have power from like. I don't know, seven to uh, eleven, or you might have it seven to you know seven to three, something like that. And then say at three p.m. it would go off, and it'd be off for four hours, so it'd be off from three p.m. to seven p.m. Um, and I remember one time we were, and and this was just sort of a, and you could look at the schedule, and it was just sort of a rolling, um, a rolling schedule of blackouts. And I remember one evening we had a. Uh, we knew that the power was going to be coming back on at nine. I guess it had gone off at five. And it was going to be coming back on at 9 p.m. And between 9 and 5 p.m., of course, at this time of year, it's dark, it's cold, um, the heat doesn't work, you can't boil water, you can't get on the computer, you can't, or at least can't get on the internet. Um, You can't do much productive of anything except maybe read a book if you can get some candlelight. So I actually ended up going to bed. I just kind of laid in my bed and and, uh, fell off to sleep. And then, and I think some of the, I think the, uh, the other folks in our house maybe had done the same. It got real quiet. Then about 9 p.m., it was maybe 9.15, the power suddenly blinked on. And so everybody hopped out of bed. Everybody came in the kitchen. The house kind of came alive. People started fixing food, boiling water. I got on the internet. I started doing my my correspondence. Uh, and we did as much as we could get done until 1 a.m. Uh, when the power went off again. So anyway, that's sort of the schedule. Four hours on, fo- or excuse me, four hours off, four hours of a blackout, followed by anywhere from four to eight hours on, depending on what segment you were on in the schedule. So with that in mind, there was a there was a bank that I needed to go to to visit and put some money on my account. And I had driven, I had tried twice to go to a particular branch of this bank and both times I'd not been able to put any money on because the power was out. And I guess in this case, the bank just, they couldn't do anything if the power was out. So I had finally found another another branch of the bank in a different region of the city where the power was on, and I had driven over there, and I had I'd, I had found them with with electricity, and I had the the ATM was working. I was able to deposit my my money, and as I was coming back, I was driving down one of the main roads um, <clears throat> that we always come down in Lviv. It, it it kind of comes into a big traffic circle, and then at the traffic circle we turn right, kind of go north uh, several blocks into into our region, back to our our home where we live. So as I was driving down the road before the traffic circle, the lights were on. You, you learn to look and say like, oh, it, you know, you look at people's apartments, you look at the street lights and everything and kind of just get a sense of are the lights on in this region or not. Um, and as I was going on, there was definitely plenty of light. No question lights were on. Um, and then I got to the traffic circle, entered the traffic circle and turned right. And as like as I exited the traffic circle, it was like driving into a wall of darkness. You could immediately tell that that was the line, that was the dividing line between a region that was in a light uh, segment of the uh, 
uh, or an electricity on segment of the schedule, if you will, and then passing directly into a region that was in a blackout. And that, that was an interesting effect too. I drove down the street, no street lights, no traffic lights, no house lights. The only exception is the occasional small business running generators. And another thing that's interesting to point out about the generators that we learned is that not everybody, in fact, probably most people in Lviv can't get a generator or can't use a generator, put that way, to power their homes. You Basically, if you have a house and you have a yard and you can set your generator outside on the ground floor, then you could potentially use one. And so a lot of the businesses that are on ground floors, they can use generators to get, you know, to run their business. Or if you happen to have an apartment on the ground floor, maybe. But if you live in an upstairs apartment, which the vast majority of, of Lviv residents do, um, you really can't use a generator. You can't run it inside. Uh, there have been there have been cases of apartments actually catching on fire when people tried to do that. And so um, so pretty much pretty much the generators are only for the ground floor businesses and people who live just in normal middle class homes, which you know in Lviv that's mostly apartments. Um, they end up sitting in the dark. So there's a few more uh, a few more impressions about the electricity situation there in Lviv. So as my trip drew to a close, uh, I finally left Lviv late on Thursday on a bus. Of course, as I said before, I left the van behind and so had to come back on public transportation. Uh, Yura drove me to the bus station in the van. And, and that was also a very interesting experience because I've actually not ridden a bus like this in many years. I used to ride them quite frequently. You know, sometimes I would fly, when I would go to the States, I would fly out of Warsaw. And so I would take a bus from Lviv to Warsaw and then fly from there. Um, but it'd been quite a while and, you know, these buses are not bad, but they're not the most comfy way to travel. The bus was filled as you might expect, mostly with women and children because men are for the most part forbidden to leave the country. Um, the ride went as well as could be expected. Um, although I found myself to be quite the oddity, you know, being a, being definitely a military age man on the bus, I, you know, I drew some, some looks. And when the uh, when I when I went to board the bus and I showed the uh, the attendant there my passport, he looked at it and he kind of smiled at me and said, "Very interesting passport." <laughs> kind of, I think what he was implying is that you know, wouldn't he like to have one of those passports and, and have the freedom to travel like that? Um, so got on the bus. Border crossing went really well. Again, that was kind of an apprehensive one because now I was going back into Europe. And in this case, uh, the bus route did go through Poland. I didn't have much choice about that. And so I was curious to see, you know, if, you know, if the Poles would honor my Slovak residency card, but they did, um, that went just fine. It was actually, it wasn't a fast border crossing, but for a, for being on a public bus like that, or a a big passenger bus, it went fairly quickly. I don't think we were on the border more than maybe an hour. So we drove west through, uh, through Poland to past Krakow, further west to another town called Katowice. And in Katowice, I had to change buses to kind of a smaller one, almost like a, about the size of maybe a church van. And uh, I was the only passenger going south to Zelina. So the, the driver was Ukrainian, it turned out. So me and this Ukrainian guy drove uh, for about two and a half hours in this van uh, south to Zelina. And I got into Zelina on Friday morning about 8 a.m., and Kelsey met me there near the bus station and uh, and got home. So it was great to be, of course, back with Kelsey and with the family in um, in Jelina. But um, it was really good to be back in Ukraine. I was so glad that I was able to go. And now that we have the residency taken care of, I look forward to more trips in the future. In fact, 
we are we are actually planning a new trip uh, this week, and we'll talk about that at a later point. But we here in just a few days, I'll be going back in. Um, but as we wrap this up, I just want to share some uh, some final impressions about my time in Ukraine. I think as I spent time there, one of the biggest questions that that was on my mind was, could we live here again? You know, we we left Ukraine at one point because we felt that that our being there was was not tenable. Um, and now, of course, the, the huge question is kind of, you know, an open one of whether or not we could return or whether we'll be able to. And of course, you know, as we've talked about before, we don't feel like that's a question we can answer definitively right now. There are still many months of winter ahead. But I want to say that in general, based on everything that I know about Ukraine and about the situation, and especially uh, based on everything that I saw and experienced while I was in Lviv this time, my answer to that question would be yes. Um, There are certainly many factors that would go into a decision like that, but I think for our family, the greatest of those factors um, in, in answering the question of whether we could go back to Lviv would be safety. We left Ukraine primarily because we were concerned for the safety of our children, um, uh, you know, several trips to a dingy underground parking lot waiting in semi-darkness as the, uh, the air raid sirens, you know, wail overhead. All of that convinced us pretty quickly that we needed to get the kids out. And so we did. But those days have passed. It's not like that now in Lviv. Yes, there are still air raid sirens. Um, a, a lot of people, you know, say what you will, but a lot of people just ignore them. Um, but Lviv in recent months has not been sustaining lots of strikes directly to to like um, residential buildings or the center of Lviv or anything like that. There have been some uh, some targets that are in the Lviv region that have been struck. There have also been some like oil storage depots and uh, and power stations that have been hit. And yes, some of those have been in the city. So you know, nothing to sneeze at. That's scary stuff. Um, but that's pretty rare. And I think that even all that. Uh, taking all that into consideration, you're still far more likely to die in a car accident in Lviv than you are in a missile strike. Now, I would I want to hasten to say that um, that would not necessarily be the safety synopsis that I would make for any city in Lviv. Certainly not those in the east. But even if we were talking about Kiev, well, that's a that's a different kettle of fish. Um, or Odessa, or Dnipropetrovsk, or those places, depending on where they are, depending on um, how seriously their infrastructure has been damaged, there are a lot of factors. But for us, of course, uh, you know, the city that's at the top of our list that's the most relevant for us is Lviv. Um, and my my opinion right now, my assessment right now is that yes, um, I would be able to take my family to Lviv. We could live there, um, and I do not feel like that would be an unnecessary or, or put it this way, that that would be an unreasonable risk. Um, our friends, again, Tomash and Miriam, they have kids. They're already living there. Pretty much everybody in our church that had evacuated, with a couple of exceptions, um, have already returned to Lviv. Um, so for now, we definitely plan to stay in Slovakia over the winter months. Uh, we'll see what the spring brings. But regardless of what happens to us, I want to remind everybody that Ukraine is fighting on. Um, This is a difficult time for them. There are many people who are struggling without electricity, without heat, uh, without water. Uh, Kiev in particular has been without water for quite long periods of time. Um, It's not that bad in Lviv, but again, many cities uh, have a harder time of it. Um, There are people whose homes have literally been destroyed. People whose 
whose villages have been wiped off the face of the map. So let's all remember that Ukraine is still in the fight. It's There's still quite a lot to go, but we stand fully on their side and we support them in this struggle for freedom. Well, that is all for this episode, folks. Uh, as we close, I just want to say again that we really appreciate your interest in our family and in Ukraine. This is a war for independence. It's a war for freedom from darkness and tyranny. The Ukrainians are fighting and dying every day for the very ideals that we as Americans and Christians hold near and dear. So please don't give up on Ukraine. Don't let yourself become complacent or disinterested. Keep helping however you can and keep praying for an end to this awful, awful war. Pray for peace, for liberty, and for victory over the oppressor. And pray that through this struggle, Ukrainians everywhere would find forgiveness and eternal life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the reason that we labor here. Okay, well, that's all for now. Thank you so much for listening and have a fantastic day. May God bless Ukraine. Nechaj Boch Blahoslovich Ukraine.